Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported project made possible by teammates like Eliza S., Diane Markasich, Solar Punk Stories, Caitlin, Eric Skillen, and hopefully you. Just go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to find the others who gain access to our Discord channel, my paywalled medium posts, archives of my writing and conversations, and participation in our live Team Human salons in the Kibitz Room. We're having our next live discussion on December 9th at 2 p.m. New York time, 7 p.m. UK time, and 11 a.m. West Coast time. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a place to play, think, and design a world in which we want to live, a chance to expose the social constructions and embrace the soft and squishy life revealed in the process. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, game designer, playmeister, and the author of The Rules We Break, Lessons in Play, Thinking, and Design, Eric Zimmerman. For me, design has that also potential for a kind of spiritual practice as well. In designing, you are intrinsically having to think about other people. I'm designing just an interface for another person. I have to think about another human being who's not myself. I have to put myself in the place of the other and think about what's going to happen when somebody else doesn't have me to explain this interface for them. Eric will be helping us learn how learning to play can keep us from being played. It's time to intervene on behalf of playful people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and tag, you're on Team Human. Last week, I shared the beginning of a piece I was working on called What's a Metaphor? That was about a 
kind of going meta on our reality. And I was trying to show how capitalism and technology both inspire this urge to level up. Well, here's my conclusion to that piece. What's a metaphor part two, where I look at long-termism, metamodernism, and optimizing Twitter for the post-human future. We are as gods and might as well get good at it. Counterculture and technology visionary Stuart Brand famously declared in 1968. And today's most hubristic tech bros took the metaphor literally. Like players of a video game, they seek to level up and then lord above humanity as technocratic gods playing SimCity writ large. They'll eventually leave behind automated programs, platforms, and blockchains to orchestrate whatever activity still matters down below, and in a fashion that still delivers up to them the cash and data they need to maintain their distant empires. Yet... As the techno-elite seek to realize their dream of self-sovereignty by establishing seasteading nations and Mars colonies, those of us left behind will have to confront the environmental degradation and economic inequality they leave in their wake. And we will attempt to do so on antisocial, psychologically abusive digital platforms they sold to us as technological empowerment. Just as we need to achieve some sort of solidarity and consensus, we are ushered into algorithmically operated Skinner boxes designed to alienate and disorient. To the rescue come the self-proclaimed sense makers who see the fall of the neoliberal order, the climate emergency, social unrest, and of course, crisis of masculinity as opportunities for sharing their rebellious wisdom. Many of these guys are quite smart, really do mean the best, and offer their audiences comfort, entertainment, and food for thought. Objectively, they're just a contingent of men who go on each other's podcasts or substack blogs and share a common belief that we are in a crisis of meaning, lacking a narrative or metaphor through which to make sense of our experience. The best of them get on Joe Rogan. Mixing two-parts systems theory to one-part Ken Wilber, a dash of Carl Jung, and a sprinkle of Robert Bly, they engage in from-the-neck-up conversations that remind me of the ones I had stoned in my freshman dorm room, fresh from reading Nietzsche, Deleuze, or Deschardins for the very first time. What if humanity is a collective organism? What if technology is wiring us up into a single brain? How do we reach the omega point of total unification? How do I articulate the ineffable totality of being. I can still remember the early 90s and what it was like to believe that we could use a combination of meditation, stoicism, psychedelics, and other enlightenment technologies to upgrade humanity to its next level of awareness and coordinated functionality. And I empathize with today's drive to visualize a great attractor at the end of time, as well as how compelling and otherworldly this promise sounds. Just buy the supplements, do the microdosing course, pay to attend the festival, and bring yourself to believe what an almost entirely white male contingent of dark enlightenment adjacent philosophers have to tell us about the realm they are colonizing on our behalf, and that we couldn't understand even if they had the words to explain it to us. It's that different from and meta to everything we have ever known. Their philosophical musings become the basis of a third liability of all this meta-thinking, which is to go meta 
as a civilizational strategy. Rather than adopting any real theory of change, any sort of incrementalism that acknowledges the impact of a wholesale social, political, and economic transition to a new way of being, we simply reboot civilization in what meta-influence changemakers and systems theorists call going from game A to game B. We change phase from the pathetic, oversimplified world of rules and governments and provincialism we're in, game A, to the ineffable but superior one that can fully embrace complexity, game B. The only question is whether we can move fast enough from game A to game B before the climate collapses. Everything up to 21st century society is game A and should be discarded like the first stage of a rocket so we can quickly transmogrify to the next paradigm. And what would that look like? Well, the devil is in the details. According to meta-thinker Jordan Hall, game B is a pointer, a concept that can't actually be described. At the center of it, as I've gone through the questioning of this over and over again, he says, is coherent collective intelligence. But in many ways, he says on a podcast, game B has a bit of that Taoist sense to it. As you are naming it, you are importing game A into it. So you have to do this very, very carefully. It's less about being able to describe it and just being able to do it. Talking about it, is a fundamental error. Because game B is so complex, Hall says, I cannot define it in any finite set of statements. If I am describing it, I have to be doing it in something that is poetic. Of course, my inability to fully accept the logic of meta can be chalked up to my own limited game A brain. I'm still stuck in the old paradigm versions of social justice, racial equality, economics, Marxism, and anarchism. I'm trapped in a theory of change that occurs incrementally with great care for the most vulnerable and a focus on exactly who is being impacted. At best, I could be called postmodern with maybe some quaint but useless skills at deconstruction. We postmodernists, we, we question symbol systems and metaphors because we see them as inventions of humans and susceptible to unconscious bias and omission. Like many outsiders who've been blamed for this thought crime throughout history, we're guilty of injecting ambiguity into otherwise consistent belief systems that just happen to be too multidimensional for direct human comprehension. And in doing so, we slow the necessary acceleration for humanity to break on through to the other side and finally reach the omega point. Replacing such obsolete postmodernism comes, wait for it, metamodernism. Instead of deconstructing false narratives, metamodernism, at least as practiced by the sensemakers who've co-opted this literary term, seeks to embrace complexity by recontextualizing indigenous, pre-modern, modern, and postmodern elements into one big meta-framework. Everything's abstracted into figure and made grist for the meta-modern mill, leaving no idea grounded in its people or place of origin. It will all be part of the great fractal. So the knowledge of first peoples and wisdom of Buddha fits right alongside Thomism or Ayn Rand, so long as the unnecessarily divisive intersectional wokeism of the left is reformed and incorporated into the coming great unification. Metamodernism defies contexts. It is meta to all that. We just have to get there. Okay. So we're supposed to accelerate toward the next 
phase of being, one order of magnitude or complexity beyond our own. Most regular humans can't even conceive of it because it's just too meta for our one-dimensional brains. But metamodernists who are well-versed in systems theory, they claim to understand the dynamics at play. Unfortunately, for those of us without the necessary stoicism, resilience, and self-sovereignty to have seen the light, game B can only be depicted as metaphor. If we keep our eyes on the prize, the omega point, the paradigm shift, the metaverse, or game B, we can stop worrying about conditions on the ground and just do it, if not for ourselves, for the sake of the future of humanity. But for me, anyway, this theory of change itself feels tragically oversimplified, using metaphors of future utopia to ignore real people and places at risk right now. I accept this could be my aged, postmodern Gen X brain simply raining on Gen Z's metamodern parade, but something about conditions on the ground tells me they may be missing something essential, or to use their parlance, they may be mistaking signal for noise. For the result of all this ends justifies the means idealism are well-intentioned but ultimately misguided mega-projects like NEOM, a $500 billion initiative of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 plan to create an entirely sustainable and autonomous nation with a constitution drafted by its investors across 100 miles of desert. Like other master plans for self-sovereign techno-utopia, it's filled with sensors and automation and includes a floating city, super train, and vertical farming technologies to grow food in an otherwise inhospitable environment. And again, the vision is plagued by those pesky conditions on the ground. In order to clear space for their dream of a sustainable future, the developers had to forcibly displace 20,000 Bedouins who'd been living there sustainably for millennia. As with World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab's Great Reset, we're to accept the metaphor at face value, have faith that our sense makers really do understand what they can't articulate, and join them in hitting Control-Alt-Delete to reboot ourselves onto a perfect blockchain. Don't worry, they've thought of everything. Predictably enough, the folks who do take these techno-solutionists, metamodernists, and Great Resetters at face value... They're scared shitless, bringing us to the last and perhaps most concerning drawback of going meta, alt-right resistance. Steve Bannon regularly warns his podcast audience that the Great Reset Initiative is part of a technocratic drive towards transhumanism, an engineering project to disconnect humanity from what otherwise grounds us in nation, community, and identity. Thus, the techno-elite's overt drive to go meta becomes the alt-right's best evidence of a conspiracy to disconnect good folk everywhere from their own blood and soil. QAnon theory is based largely on the belief that the technocratic elite have the capacity to rule human affairs from stations once removed from everyday life. Just this month, QAnon congressional candidates were claiming that Hurricane Ian was created with high-tech weather machines to punish Governor Ron DeSantis and that President Biden was building a transhuman cyborg army using immigrants. Meanwhile, authoritarians are winning elections in Europe by positioning themselves as our last best chance to reclaim our humanity from those attempting to go meta on the rest of us through technology or financialization. Ironically, 
They lift some of the very same language about humanism and self-sovereignty that we hear from the sense-makers and meta-modernists they mean to oppose. The metaphors of the seemingly pro-human, nature-loving, spiritually unified, and psychedelics-inspired agenda, they're just at home in the campaigns of fascist and authoritarian regimes as they are in the conversations of stoned men on New Age podcasts. In her acceptance speech last month, Italy's newly elected far-right nationalist prime minister proclaimed, When I am only a number, when I no longer have an identity or roots, then I will be the perfect slave at the mercy of financial speculators, the perfect consumer. That's why we inspire so much fear. That's why this event inspires so much fear, because we do not want to be numbers. We will defend the value of the human being. The words spread like wildfire on Twitter. What most retweeters missed, however, was the lead into that speech when she said, Why do we spend our time fighting all types of discrimination, but we pretend not to see the greatest ongoing persecution, the genocide of the world's Christians? But in the mix and match ethos of metamodernism, such contexts fall away. Maybe that's what a meta is really for. Besides, such turbulence doesn't appear to bother those who are most committed to going meta. If anything, the socio-political turmoil generated by all this confusion becomes a driving force for the social change they imagine. That's what's really behind Elon Musk and Prince Alwaleed bin Talal's purchase of Twitter and the subsequent plans to unleash the unbridled energy of its crowd. Understood through the lens of going meta and Musk's own statements, the real objective for controlling an information environment like Twitter become clear. It's not about the profit on this level of the game. To the extent that it's about money, it's less about Twitter's share price and the platform's ability to become a currency exchange or to develop a token of its own. Saudi Arabia has been working to undermine the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency for a while now. The vision is less for Twitter to be a social network or even a company, but a new operating system for society, sometimes dubbed Blue Sky. As former Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey explained it, in principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular solution I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness. Just like Zuckerberg, Musk means to go meta on the social platform and create an information layer one order of magnitude above the fray. Bezos is likely working on the same thing in his own way. Google must have a deep mind AI version of hive consciousness on the production schedule. And I can't imagine Apple isn't working on its own pay version of a next level metaverse for humanity. But with all these meta-megalomaniacs competing to build the metaverse, Game B, Great Reset, Blue Sky, or meta-modern post-human Omega Point, aren't we back in the same mess? If everybody is meta, then nobody is. Perhaps the one way to truly transcend all this meta is to stay down here in the world of atoms, figuring out how to make this reality a better and more caring place, instead of competing to pre-colonize the next one. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I've known today's guest, Eric Zimmerman, since my days teaching at NYU's interactive telecommunications program in the mid-90s, when he was first running Game Labs and making Diner Dash or GameStar Mechanic, a site that lets kids create their own games. He was among the first to see the possibilities for play unleashed by digital technology. And I don't mean gamification of workplaces, but a culture defined and refined by the possibilities of play. What are the rules here? Can they be broken or even rewritten by the players? What is up for discussion and what is too sacred to be questioned? Those are the questions for which I turn to my friend and soon to be yours, Eric Zimmerman. I was actually thinking about when I first encountered your work, and I feel like when I was first when I first moved to New York City and I was working at RGA with Frank Lance, uh-huh. I was organizing a reading group there at that company, and we read Media Virus when it came out. Oh that my was God. like must when was that like the early nineties, mid nineties? That was ninety four. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh <laughs> <laughs> that's how I first heard about you reading that book. But anyway, it's wow, been, those it's are been the good fun. old days. Yes. Yeah. It's been fun following your, your whole career since then. That was actually an interesting moment to start with. So media virus for me was about the way that interactive media introduced playability to the media space. You know, I was raised mm-hmm. in a read only media space where the closest thing to interactive television was this show called what Tinky Winky or something. We used to put, you put a plastic right. a film over the right. TV that screen. Was, that was interactive TV. Yes, right. absolutely. And you drew yeah. a little line like right. help Tinky Winky escape from the fire. Right. And you right. draw a little line and then Tinky Winky would broad, walk across it. But other than that, I mean, that wasn't really interactive media. I mean, it was like it, but we couldn't change anything about anything. And then interactivity came along, you know, the, the remote control, the joystick, the right. mouse. Right. And it was like, oh my gosh. And for me, it threw media, at least to start, not even as a metaphor, but actually we were gaining the ability to play. It's why I wrote in the later book, play the future to actually right. play the media. I mean, you were, that was from what I understood, the sensibility of your, certainly your early work as well. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I studied art before I came into games. So I was mm. coming from a point of view of someone who was interested in making culture that, you know, had meaning that that had some kind of resonance in larger uh, circles and um, that could impact people in some way or engage with people or engage with culture critically. And when I entered games, I was surprised to find that unlike the art world, where as an art student, you study all the isms, you know, modernism, postmodernism, feminism, you know, minimalism, you learn about all of these kind of interesting debates of schools of thought that have kind of gone on over the years. And when I entered the game industry, despite the fact that when I entered in the in the 1990s, started making games professionally as an intern at a company, uh, Games were already big business. This was this was post Atari. This was already right. kind of the CD ROM era. The what very first, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the the first days of the web. Yeah, and so, but despite the fact that games were really established in an economic sense, there there wasn't really a discipline, right? There wasn't any established right. language for talking about what games were, what it meant to design them. There weren't these schools of thought. There weren't these kind of critical debates, and so. While I was working at the company and I started teaching as an adjunct and I started writing about games, what I first started writing about was what what is what does it mean to be a game designer? What are games? How are we going to define these things? And what does it mean to design meaningful experiences for players? And so that eventually led to the book that Katie Salen and I wrote, Rules of Play, right. which became a standard textbook and and was one of a lot of efforts that kind of helped define the field of game design at the time. Yeah. I mean, I remember I was, I was involved in that as well, not consciously, but you know, I wrote this <laughs> book for Harper Collins in 96 called playing the future, which mm -hmm. uh, later got renamed screenagers. But you know, I ended up saying, oh, you know, it seems like there's sort of these three kinds of games. There are these kind of shooter games, or there be there are these god games when you're on top. Then there are these, mm -hmm. yeah, one sort of in between, and then there are these group games. Just trying to sort of develop, I mean, a, a, almost a back of the napkin taxonomy right. for what are these different sorts of experiences, but underneath it was something else. It felt like that playability was itself. It had so many implications. Like you know, you and I both. I think you told me about it, but then I read um, Homo Ludens by right. this guy Huizinga, right? <laughs> right? Which is he's writing it. You know, it's the same year as the Glass Bead Game by Herman mm -hmm. Hesse. This other this other Dutch guy writes Homo Ludens, where he's arguing that oh no, we shouldn't have been Homo sapiens, man the knower, we man the player, right. and that you look at basically the main insight that I got from it is we look at dogs playing and we think that they're playing in order to prepare for the hunt, and he says no 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 no, they hunt in order to have the energy to be uh, able to play right that the play right. is the thing you know and you and you really took that oh, you know way further i mean and you looked at a bunch of guys like calois and and right. these other thinkers but basically helping us understand play and this is what you guys both did and hafner did it too uh, uh play as an essential human activity you right know, as maybe the core <laughs> the right. core human activity yeah and i and i mean I guess for me, I'm, you know, I'm a game designer. I'm really not, I mean, I guess I'm a full-time academic too because I teach design, but I think of myself as a designer that teaches in order to learn about design and I write in order to learn about design. So I'm, I'm less of a scholar. And for me, I think play is one way of understanding the world and understanding kind of this moment that we're living through in history and one way of understanding 
how how and why people do meaningful things. So I for me it's it doesn't yeah. have to be the frame for understanding the world, but I think it's a really useful one. A, a it's a frame. But but yeah. all right, so let's talk about design. And when you were talking about game design, people got to understand it it's not it's not to make it sound low. It's different. It's not game design like you're at, you know, uh, uh, Electronic Arts designing, you know, the the Web3 version of Trollathon or something. That right. For game design, it's like so fundamental. Like your game design, when I think about you doing it, it's more like, like Aeschylus writing a Greek tragedy. What are the essential elements of of playability here all the way back to, I mean, the first game of yours that I played was, um, I don't even know if it's PC to say it now was sissy fight. Oh yeah. Oh no. Sissy fight was a, it's, that's a feminist intervention oh, into good. the, oh, good. All the, right, the good. game industry, very self-consciously playing with gender identity. So yes, it's definitely, uh, uh, a game that we can reference here. Yeah. Sissy fight. Wow. That's, uh, you are it was you're rolling great. back into the archive. Well, it yeah. was on this one of the first great websites called Word.com, which was sort mm -hmm. of a, a literary site by Marissa Bow. Mm -hmm. And then what did she did you just come to her with this game or how did that game happen? And then explain explain how it worked. Yeah, well, I'll talk about Sissy Fight and then I definitely want to kind of you know what? Let's can we pause in Sissy yes. Fight for a second? Yeah. Because I want to expand a little bit on what you were saying about what what game design is. Because I think that that's a really good point. When I okay. say I'm a game designer, a lot of people might be thinking maybe I'm a programmer or maybe right. I do visual design. I'm actually not a technologist. I know a little bit of programming, but that's not the role that I play on projects. And when I think about games and play, I'm not just thinking about video games. For me, games and play encompasses everything from playground games that children do to crossword puzzles to professional sports to, you know, digital and electronic games as well. And I see play as, as you said, as sort of an ancient or essential human activity, although other mammals do it as well. Dogs also play yeah. and, and higher mammals generally play. A game designer is kind of like an experienced designer. And we help structure the player's experience traditionally by making rules, right? So the game designer makes the rules of a game. So if you are, if you're buying a board game, what are you buying? You're buying a box, maybe some dice, a deck of cards, some pieces that go in it. Um, but you're also buying the way to play that game, right? So the designer is determining what are the spaces on the board, what you do on a turn, how many cards are in the deck and what's on each card and all of that kind of decision-making process that led to this game. That that's what game design is. So, so the, the classes that I teach at the game center in my own work, the games range from tabletop games to physical and social games to video games and digital games to large scale installations to single player experiences, multiplayer experiences. Some are much more commercial, some are much more experimental and shown in kind of art contexts and others are uh, more educational. It's just uh, a, a, a whole range of stuff. Some of them, though, because I've been in some of your classes and lectures, yeah. some of them are just like, okay, look to the person on your left and pick a number and have them you know, right. raise right. two fingers. Right. And it's right. like the whole room is in this game that there's like three right. rules. And then there's like two winners at the end and you get right. a face off. But it's um, that's gaming, too. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, so when I teach, I'm, I, I'm not a technologist and I'm not teaching classes on how to make video games. There's plenty of other classes where I teach at the NYU Game Center where people that know much more about digital game development teach, but I really teach the fundamentals, which means I'm, I'm teaching things like systems thinking, 
how to collaborate with other people as you solve problems, how to rapidly prototype and iterate, how we understand why a choice or an action is meaningful for somebody uh, in a system, and really the creative design process. So it's a it's it's those kind of more fundamental things, and we do it by making games together, by playing, critiquing, and and playtesting each other's games. So, but. We can get back to Sissy Fight if you want to for a second. <laughs> Sissy Fight was, um, yeah, I'm very, very fond of that game. I worked with a lot of uh, a lot of great people at Word.com. They approached me to make that game. Somehow, they I knew that they I met some folks there. We were crossing paths, and and they wanted to do a game. I think that Marisa had read that article about Lucas Arts Habitat, that multiplayer online game where it was one of the very, very early graphical multi-user games. And she said, hey, that was so interesting. All of the the weird things that people did inside that community when they were running around as these sort of two-dimensional avatars. Let's do something like that. So we got together and I led them through some ideation sessions and prototyping sessions. And Sissy Fight, the game that we made, is a game about little girls in social conflict on a playground. And... You design your own avatar. Everyone is a girl, and the girls are kind of cute and kind of ugly at the same time. Uh-huh. They were, but they were actually based on some of Henry Darger, the outsider artist's oh, uh, really? stra- strange paintings of 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 small little girls that are somehow both cute and terrifying at the same time. But translated into this pixel aesthetic, which was very much Word.com's sensibility, and it's a it's it's a game that's a game inspired by game theory in in the sense that. Everybody decides what they're going to do at the same time, and then everyone reveals their their actions turn by turn. So we're all trying to reduce the self-esteem of the other girls, which makes it seem like a very cruel game. And I should say this is a game about childhood, but for adults. It's not a game right. for children. So you're trying to reduce the self-esteem of the other girls. So if it, Doug, if you and I were playing with other people and I teased you, it wouldn't do anything. But if I, through the text chat and us interacting, convinced somebody else to join me and tease you, then the teasing would have a big effect right. the whole the, on your self-esteem, lowering your self-esteem. So turn to turn, the whole game is about making alliances, backstabbing other people. And there's lots of other things you can do besides teasing. And so it's this whole kind of uh, uh, it feels like a social card game in the sense that right. you are, you know, it's it's all about the kind of uh, social interaction and and the p- sort of playfully mean behavior. And it spawned a really lovely community around the game that lasted for a very long time. Well, it did. And because it, it, in some ways, oddly, it, it presupposed trolling online and mm. all the mean behavior that happened. Right. It was right. sort of like a micro. But by doing it consciously and for fun at the beginning, in some ways, it exercised those of us in that community from the kinds of fears and urges that people ended up with in the regular social media space. And it's almost right. like, I want to make it say, all right, before you're allowed to go on Twitter or Facebook, you have to go through a six month sissy right. fight training. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's very funny that you say that because that was very self-consciously part of what we wanted to explore. We thought, can we harness the kind of uh, trolling or, I think they called it like fl- the kind of flame wars. That was flame the, wars, the yeah. term of the era, right? When you would kind of like this sort of mob mentality and jump on someone, all the trash talking in games. And can we harness that and and kind of take take that energy and kind of use it for something that that is 
kind of engaging. And it goes a little bit back to Housingha, who you mentioned. And one of the key concepts that I took from him was this idea of a magic circle, that mm. a game gives us a space that is in some ways separate from the ordinary world. In many ways, not. But in some ways, it's separate from the ordinary world. And so our behavior there changes. So it gives us permission, for example, to do things we wouldn't do in ordinary life. Like if I put, I can put on boxing gloves and and punch someone in the face and the game gives me permission to do that. Or I can spin a bottle right. and, and kiss someone. Or in Sissy Fight, I can kind of playfully explore transgressive behavior in this circle of play that we've established by, by deciding to play together. That, that right. doesn't mean that games are not separate from, you know, all of the messed up representations in media and the exploitative revenue models. I don't want to say that games are separate from ordinary life, but that's that's an important way that that games that is part of part of what makes games so meaningful and engaging for people. Right. I mean, and one thing that Hoisinger kept harping on was that the minute the game has any real world direct real world implications. It's not a game. So like a basketball player whose career is going to depend on whether he makes that dunk shot, that's not play. That's something else. Right. Right. And, and even, you know, all the sort of learning games that are so about, you know, Oh, you're going to learn math with this game or this with this game. Once it has that weight on it, it's not really, really play anymore. Right. That's sort of something I want to talk about as as we move towards your your more recent work and your beautiful book, the rules we the rules we break, lessons in play, thinking, and design. Is that I wouldn't want people to think that your work is about oh here's gamification basically here's how we can <laughs> here's how game and play is useful in your work, your career, your religion, your education, and your retirement and your four hundred one k plan. That in some ways to me. That's the desecration of the sacred circle that you're talking about. That 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 play is such a high sacred thing that, boy, that that the use of uh, gaming and gamification is taking. It's the way to me gamification for business. Like we're going to create incentives and all this is the equivalent of when like they exploit our repressed sexual desire to sell us products or something. It's like, no, 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 don't, don't go there. So uh, first I'm interested in, in sort of your, your perspective on gamification and applied play versus genuinely playful play. You know, the way that play has been used to create these kind of Skinner boxes of incentives for people. This is a really important topic today, I think for a lot of reasons, but let's talk about gamification Here's my general feeling. And sometimes people are surprised. They say, oh, you're a game designer. Aren't you, wouldn't you be in favor of gamification? Isn't that sort of applying game-like thinking to everything? And it's really not. It's For me, it's kind of the opposite. For me, gamification strip mines the superficial aspects of games, points and levels and rewards and punishments for, as you say, the a kind of Skinner box for behavior as psychology, you know, in order to get people to use uh, an airline, they will have a frequent flyer program and use things like points and levels that we get from games. But in strip mining, those superficial elements, giving badges and awards and achievements, they generally, they being the people doing practicing gamification, leave the soul of game behind. So what the soul of game, things like the the creativity of bending and breaking and remaking rules, the uh, the the expressiveness 
that and and chaos and sort of magic of of playing with other people that that kind of improvisation that happens at the heart of games and also i would say the transgressive power of games the critical power of games in play i want to get into this maybe later but for me play in games is a model for being critical in the world today because of its the way that play always plays with other structures but what gamification does is it it leaves all of the kind of the interesting stuff about play behind and another way of another way that i like to put it is that every form of design has a model of what it means to be human implied in the design so if someone makes a chair there's a model for what it means to be human there's a physical model well i'm making a chair for a certain sized person and there's a you know a certain person that can afford a certain amount of material i'm 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 designing a chair for someone who wants to feel like a king or queen as they eat dinner right that's different than saying i'm i'm designing a chair for someone who who has a sensibility of i don't know sustainability or minimalism or something else so the model of what it means to be human that's implied by gamification as an approach to design is the rat in the box right it's just an incredibly impoverished idea of what it means to be human. So for me, part of being a designer and also because I'm an educator teaching design and talking about design is making that connection. And so uh, this is what's, you know, I also find so exciting about a lot of your conversations, Doug, is that that's also what you're always doing is saying, what is the model of what it means to be human or the implied sense of what society is, what society could be, that is tied to this way of using technology or this right. way of of having a revenue model or you know or 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 gamification in this case so that right. to me it's that ethical it's that ethical layer of thinking about yourself as a designer and that's not to kind of bring games down and say games can't be fun i love games uh i like playing for play's sake as you said yeah. i think there there is a place for as you said the the sacred circle of a game but at the same time, I think part part of our responsibility is, especially as designers, is thinking about how the culture that we create fits into the media landscape and is tied to things outside of itself. And in right. your kind of roll into gamification, you started talking about this kind of revenue models of games today. And I think right. that there's, you know, games have definitely changed since you and I met. And play to earn, play yeah, to earn. Yeah, My yeah, God, yeah. But if you think about it, even books have a revenue model, right? And the yeah. the, the revenue model of a book is that there's you know there's a uh, there's a press that pays an author to write a book. That book has to be manufactured. the The press does the manufacturing, distribution, and marketing. The author gets some royalties, and that's traditional. I know people are, are breaking that in interesting ways, which is fantastic. And games used to be like that too, because games used to be a thing that you bought on a shelf, right? And I think what's interesting about games is that because they were sort of the first kind of digital culture that people really wanted to buy and say, like, I'm going to spend money on this digital thing, which is a game. And first, I'll buy it off a shelf, but soon I'll I'll download it. I'll subscribe Mm -hmm. to it. I'll get the app on my phone. And digital distribution has really changed games. And it's blurred the line between making the thing and the revenue model. So this has been huge in games, that it used to be this kind of, I'm going to make a thing. It's going to end up on a shelf like a book. It'll be a CD-ROM or a cartridge and, and someone will buy it and they'll have an experience. And I can think of it as a work of culture or media like a book, but right. 
Now today, games are, and there's other things too, apps and services, but games have, games have shifted from this product model to a service model in a lot of contexts. And because games are tickling desire and pleasure as the th- reason why you're doing them, right? They're really, they're embedding themselves into the kind of uh, the guts and and libidos of players yeah. because that's what they do. They're They're about having fun and, you know, they're about, replayability and uh, they're a thing where maybe addiction isn't always a bad thing because it just means that I'm enjoying myself and getting together with friends and want to play again. So it's very dangerous though, because that's, it's where a lot of the dark patterns for exploitative patterns for exploiting people and kind of tricking them out of money have been pioneered uh, is in games. But even when they're in games, I don't feel as bad about them in games (laughs) because it's like, you know, if like people are getting drunk on alcohol, it's like, right, well, that was what alcohol was for. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If people are getting drunk on milk because they're dropping alcohol into it, I'm a little pissed off then. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> right. one is sort of with consent, you know? Right, right. Yeah, and I agree, but the most pernicious aspect of it is when you're in a game without quite realizing it, and the rules of the game seem to you like conditions of nature. So the the sort of the scarcity model that you were suggesting that gets that gets conveyed to us in these sort of Skinner rats in a you know, didn't you make a game called like Rats on a Ship? Rats Yes, rats. yeah. Yeah, that's a recent right. project I did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Rats. So yeah. wrote a rat. <laughs> Rats is the gamification model, right? But you're bringing it into people, right? It's rats. They're trying to get off the ship, right? Before right. it, it, it well, they're sank. actually actually they're, that that was the game inspired by the pandemic. It's rats ignoring the fact that the ship is sinking and throwing a big party, right? But oh, it's right. sort of it's kind yeah. of a parody, a parody of that whole the whole moment of watching the world burn, you know, while while some people are preferring to just you know party on. Uh, that was a right. game I did with with Josh DeBonis that was uh, published by Shut Up and Sit Down, and we're we're relaunching it with uh, with Deep Water Games. But as game, what as a game experience, what it does is rather than hiding its rule set, it mm. showcases its rule set and reality right. as a way of making social commentary and bringing something right. into consciousness rather than out of it. Right. Yeah. And I think, okay. And that, that's a, that's, that's really nice way of, of putting it. And this kind of brings us to one of the huge connections, I think, between lots of things that I've heard you write about and talk about on your Mm. show and my practice as a, as a game designer, which I'm really, you know, excited to dialogue with you about. And that is, well, it has to do with a couple things. One is the relevance of games to the world in which we live today. And then the second is like their their potential, I think, for critical as for being a model for kind of critical action. Mm. Games are relevant. And I know that I'm, you know, we're preaching to the choir here with your with right. your audience, but you know, the ways that we live and work and learn today are basically completely in in industrialized democracies, especially, are completely enmeshed in networks of information, the ways that we you know, conduct our finances and date and romance and socialize and and learn and research and communicate with each other. We're we're completely embedded in all of these uh, services and 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 technologies and networks. And the reason why I think games are are relevant is that games are for me the cultural form that, in its very ancient origins, is actually about systems thinking 
in just this way. Whenever mm -hmm. we play a game of chess, we are kind of like pushing and pulling at the inputs and outputs of a system. In other words, every game is kind of a little laboratory for practicing the kinds of systems thinking that I think are part of contemporary literacy, right? Right. What is the first order effect of moving this pawn? Well, what's right. the second order effect? And right. if I can get there, what's the third? Right. right. Which is exactly. basic system thinking. Yeah. And then it's also about, I'm also playing with an, another person. And so there's other layers too. Am I right. playing with a, with a younger kid? And maybe I need to be sensitive to that. And when do I bend a rule and let them take a move back? Mm. You know, maybe I should even let this person win because what's more important, me winning or them learning something or both of us having a good time. So games are just wonderful contexts for this kind of, uh, this learning and experience. And of course, every cultural form is a system too, a, a music and a poem, uh, a piece of theater. These are all complex systems, but games for me, I'm a game designer, I'm biased, but games for me are particularly adept at having us really experience this kind of interactive push and pull with other people because they are dynamic participatory systems at their very core. And it's amazing. It's kind of mind blowing to me that they, that they are so ancient. There are games that are thousands and thousands of years old. The, the earliest games from Africa and, and the ancient Near East and Asia, they're, they're, these games are ancient and people were kind of creating these state systems with rules and, and they're often quite sophisticated games. The Mancala family out of Africa and the Parchisi family, you know, in Southeast Asia, <laughs> go, go, the Vikings the game. family. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these are, these are amazing games. These are amazing right. works of culture that have happened in, in mostly through folk culture. But what's interesting is that digital technology has given games a new relevance and all of the ways that we've been talking about games as kind of as product models, dark design patterns, you know, tickling our libidos, sitting within our, our digital systems of computers and smartphones Digital technology has made games sort of super relevant to, to culture again, more than they were as just sports and parlor games. Right. But part of the problem is that these games, these games, most of them are being designed in the marketplace. Right. And most of these games have an underlying assumption of the same kind of scarcity that informed game theory to begin with. You know, so you could take like like Prisoner's Dilemma, say, mm -hmm. as most people know, is like the, the original sort of game theory model. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, but they're prisoners. It's right. like, wait a <laughs> right. minute. Like, right. assuming we're all prisoners and that they're going to put someone in jail forever right. and that you have no agency whatsoever, what are you going to do? How is that the basis of human behavior? You right. know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Assume you're in a death camp. You know, I want to. I, <laughs> I, I think games are their games are part of the problem and potentially part of the solution. Yeah, so I totally agree with you. There's so many ways that are that games are fucked up. I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. You you can, but it's yes. not game. To me, that's not play. To me, they right. take a whole bunch of underlying assumptions, and so much of the, the uh, our understanding of games, and certainly gamification, supports this zero-sum mentality, right. and games do not have to do that right. to be fun and great. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that you put your finger on it, that it's exactly zero-sum thinking. The idea that, you know, my my losses are are your wins and and vice versa that's a very traditional model of a game if you beat me at tennis you win and i lose but it's it's not the only tool in the toolbox 
in terms of the structures right. that we could use when we're it's when we're designing games. Right. It's not you know, it's like like you know, you 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 wrote about it in 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 the first book, you know that the difference between what agonistic play Mm-hmm. And and play play. So agonistic play is like there's right. a winner and a loser, and you're you're competing against somebody. But right. what about if you're doing a happening together, or right. you know, building a house of ice? That's right. play. And when properly contextualized, I think in good design, competitive play also becomes something that also can elevate. Well, what did you call it? Collaborative conflict. I think. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, which is an interesting De- way of saying it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bernie DeCoven, who's a mentor of mine who passed away a few years ago, used to write about how, you know, Dr. J and Larry Bird used to write about how they would challenge each other to in almost in a spiritual sense, as sort of on opposing teams, you know, to to elevate and make their play more beautiful. And there, I think that, and then sissy fight, as you talked about, it can be a place where we, where it can be like a training ground because we know that it's a game or we're agreeing to play together. And therefore all the trash talking and what might be negative behavior can be really quite magically transformed into something positive and it can even comment on the whole idea of what negative behavior can be. And we can sort of come to, to learn about it, own it maybe through catharsis or maybe through uh, just through humor, come to terms with it in a certain way. This brings me to the other big point I wanted to make, um, which is that we're always playing with something. So if you think about what makes something playful, so imagine just somebody walking down the street, just on their a hurry on their way, trying to get somewhere. You see it all the time in New York City, the fast walk. That's yeah. walking as utility, getting from point A to point B. But then think about a kid who's not in a hurry, maybe doesn't even know where their parent is taking them. What might they be doing? I don't know. Spinning around in circles. Are they hopping? Are they whistling? Mm -hmm. Walking backwards, trying not to step on cracks. So why is that playful? Why do we immediately see that there's something playful going on? Because they're taking structures and they're doing things they're not really supposed to be doing with them. So if walking is about pure utility. It's about transportation from point A to point B. Playful walking is about playing with one's body, playing with maybe proper behavior, playing with the idea of efficiently, purely efficiently getting from point A to point B. And it's playing with that structure. So Mm. play always plays with something. In a role-playing game, we play with identity. In a fighting game, maybe a video like we're an arcade fighting game, we're playing with a structure in the system, with a psychology, the rock, paper, scissors of me trying to figure out what what you're gonna do next. And so playing plays with something. And I think that it can be quite powerful. And for me, I think about even powerful artworks that that for me play with things. Like um Adrian P- Piper was a an artist that that had this piece where when someone would say a racist comment in a conversation, and she's a black artist that pass, often passed for white, she would hand them a card that said, you may not realize it, but you know I'm a black person and your, your comment uh, has, uh, it, it had a sort of a short statement like you're, I'm yeah. sure you did not realize the harm that, that you were causing me you know, in this context. And so it was, this, it was this way for her to kind of playfully, but also sort of brutally uh, play with this idea of polite conversation and what yeah. you're supposed to do. I think of artists like the Yes Men, Right. Who are right. kind of playfully intervening, doing things they're not supposed to be doing. Right. And right. Pretending to be other people. Right. And with effects, and there's these different levels of it. And we don't have to go into 
all these taxonomies now, but you know, there's the there's the kid who's playing with the lines in the street. There's the skateboarder who might refashion the abandoned parking lot as Love a vert that. ramp. Love you that know, example. It's like what is it? It's re, you know right. re re. But they're then playing with the urban play- space. Yeah, they're yes, they're they're exactly. reframing what a city actually, literally, what a city is. This is not right. Yeah, I love that. This is right. This is not a parking lot. This is a vert ramp. This right. is not a library. Right. This is a, 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 a steps for me to to do flips on. Right. And but then there's a, another level of it, which is like Trump at a Republican debate, where he's like, right, okay, he's got different stakes than everybody because he doesn't really need the job. He's but he's now he's in there playing. But then he's in there also winning. And I feel right. like that the kind of play, funny, I talked to Are You Serious about this a few years ago. There was this play that the left used to do from Lenny Bruce and Paul Krasner right. and Abby Hoffman. Let's raise the Pentagon. You know, the whole right. prankster, yippee, right. Yep. right through the yes men. To destabilize culture, we're going to play. And it feels to me now like it's the right that is way better at that right play the alt-right mean people and musk and you know so it's like funny i i always thought that the playful energy would always favor the good progressive thoughtful right but it doesn't necessarily you know the fascists were playful in their way wow that is a that is quite a (laughs) statement but i i agree with you that there is a kind of subcultural there's a kind of subcultural juice that the right has stolen from the left. And I think part of it comes from the fact that in some ways, the left establishment had a lot of victories, right? I mean, I know that we're very, very far from the kind of society that we want to live in, but on the cultural side, things like acceptance of gay marriage or Women not being required to wear skirts in the workplace. I mean, not too many decades ago. So there are many examples of where a lot of that left progressivism became the establishment. And I don't know, maybe maybe there's a cycle in which what it means to rebel against the establishment is a space, is an inventive space. Right. Exactly. Because I guess the left was trying to, in some sense, lock down its wins and right and institutionalize its victories right. so then whoever's you know play is almost always kind of anti-institutional in a, right. in a certain way you know unless it's gamification which doesn't really count and that and that brings me i don't want to leave it out that brings me to to you know the opening of your book you talk about us being in the ludic century right which is sort of that it's this it's the way that that games relate to this specific moment in our our almost civilizational development you know, which is, I guess, it's right. just why your work is important right now. I would never want to say that, you know, everyone should be a game designer or everyone needs to play games. The reason why I think some of these ideas could be useful or interesting to people is for the reasons that we're talking about games being a great place to understand how systems work, how people think, how we design meaningful experiences for them. And I guess for me, it comes down to our whole world is designed. So I'm looking at you right now on a computer screen. There's light falling on us. That's mostly not natural light. You know, everyone is hearing us through super mediated through recordings that became digital information that was then stored and and rebroadcast or downloaded in some way. 
all of the food that we're all digesting, the clothes that we're wearing, the furniture we're sitting in, or the structures we're inhabiting, these are all designed. And in, there's a sense in which designers really are constructing so much of our lived reality day to day. And it, it's, I think it's very important that designers understand the implications of what they're doing and that they're, we're, we're not just teaching crafts, right, of design, but we're, we're, t- we're thinking about design and I'm including technology. I'm thinking about organizational design. I'm thinking about business as a as a kind of production of culture as the design of culture at, with the with the ethical layer with the human layer and that's that's really what my work is about it appeals though to to me as not a designer but as a player mm. because if i'm a player and i'm aware of game design mm-hmm. then on the one hand i start looking at everything as what is playable and what is not you know, so i got the money in my pocket wait a minute this is not playable this is a read only medium that i can use in this way, but the rules are really pretty hard. And if I break one right. of the rules about this money, they're going to throw me in jail. Right. There's going to be actual effects. But then I can look at, say, the stock market. Say, okay, there's all mm-hmm. these rules about all this stuff. And then there's this invitation from whoever, from E-Trade or Charles Schwab. Oh, you can play. You have the right to play this game. And they give me little screens I can put on my computer that look just like, you know, Bloomberg terminals, or they look Mm -hmm. a bit like what a real stockbroker has, but they're not. I'm getting my information minutes, hours, days after other people's information. The trades that I hit are all front run by other things. They're not real trades. They're happening at a trading desk Mm -hmm. and they're synthetic and nine other people are making money off the trade that I've done before I even make it. I'm not in the game. They've given me the pretense of the game. And it's like playing games in the way that you're saying, help us ask the question, do I have the same, am I, (laughs) <laughs> Do I have the same rules as everybody else? Right. What is the thing that I'm doing? And that's important because because it's like, how am I getting my job? How am I getting through school? Oh, these people have the right to give me diplomas and they can give credits with classes and grades and all right. that. But wait a minute. Is this playable? I'm, I'm a player. Do, how do I cheat at this game? Right. How do I redesign this game? Right. How do I become the author or the programmer rather than the just the cheater or the player? Right. And I, I totally agree with you. And that's 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 a sort of like let's say level progression of this sort of game like thinking where you we want to we want to engage with systems. We want to understand how they work. We want to be able to kind of really deconstruct them and get into their systems. And then really play with them in a deeper level than just getting good at these systems. We want to, yeah, bend rules, break rules, and redesign them. And that's why I think there's there it's there's a blurry line between being a player and being a designer. But it, you know, what what you're saying, I, Doug, I have to say, keep on thinking about. By the way, I, this is an aside, but are you? Is this a Doug or Douglas era? I feel like I've known you when you've been both. Are you going more by Douglas these days? I I generally am as I return to my childhood sensibilities. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Douglas, I feel like when I first met you, maybe you were Doug Rushkoff, but um, people always did that. But ah, okay. you know, and I just went with it because okay. you know All I right. was passive. But with it, it's fine. Doug, I respond to Doug. Okay. I come if there's as long as there's a treat, I come. <laughs> Got it. The question that we were talking about, about why the right is playful, I'm actually still thinking about that. It's a really interesting question. And I think that in both cases, people are 
kind of deconstructing the system, doing things that they're not supposed to be doing, uh, it, let's say exploiting the system. But I think that you have to look at the kind of underlying motivation for what's going on. And I and I like to think that, you know, there's a there's a kind of play which is more like a let's say a Jane Jacobs kind of play, right? Where where her insight about the about the way urban structures operated was that it's not about having these kind of central structures of authority. The life of a city are the sort of emergent, unexpected things that happen on stoops in neighborhoods right. where there's a sort of organic growth of, of a city in a neighborhood. And I feel like a lot of the play that happens on the alt-right is either motivated by like a nostalgia for authoritarianism so I think in the worst cases, like fascism, it's really about a sort of religion of authority. And it's about taking down the system in fealty to, to I don't know, some kind of father figure or authoritarian figure, or it's just very selfish. It's like, hey, I'm going to hack the system, you know, to show off my exploits or to make a lot of money in cryptocurrency or or whatever it is. And I feel like the examples of play on the left that we're talking about are more to expose hypocrisy to somehow create this sort of Jane Jacobs like space. That's a more democratic space. And maybe this is my own bias showing up, but I really feel that while there are superficial similarities, I think that there is a kind of a fundamental ethical difference about what's motivating your play and is your play about trying to shine light on inequities in the system in order to make it a better place for all of us or is it about um like i said a, a, a kind of like just making your point or propagandizing bernie DeCoven, who i mentioned earlier he's the author of a book called the well-played game he was someone who uh helped invent the new games foundation which is a wonderful thing that Stuart Brandt was a part of, so definitely came out of hippie culture. He had this idea that what he called the well-played game is a game that is constantly under reinvention. In other words, mm. we're playing dodgeball, but not everybody's having a good time. Well, let's figure out why. Well, we shouldn't play by the strict rules because we have little kids with us, or we have people that want to be goofier or we have people that that we don't have enough people so we have to adjust the game try something yeah. out and and evolve it but the reason why we do it is in order to make a better and more meaningful experience for everyone involved a, for more people it's a yes. more inclusive it's thing. more right. inclusive so, exactly so what i was playing what do they call it foursquare dodgeball with my daughter when she was in elementary school classic and they added these things like any kid at any time can go cherry bomb and they right. like do this thing right. and they throw a ball up and I'm like, you're introducing randomness into this game. And I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> right. They're introducing randomness right. into the game right. because the little kids can't play as well as the big ones. Right. So they have these things. Otherwise, it's not going to be fun and the little kids aren't going to want to play at all. Right. And then, you know, then you get a whole a whole different game. Now, that's a very different way of breaking rules and adapting rules than say, oh, let's gerrymander these right. territories right <laughs> right exactly let's put in legislatures that can overturn any election if we don't win right <laughs> like the example of gamification gerrymandering strips stri is strip mining game game like thinking let's exploit the system but it's leaving the soul of what democracy is about behind
right? So it's strip right. mining the surface, but it's leaving the soul of mm. the spirit of the system behind. And that's why it's so important. But I love that example about Foursquare. By the way, Foursquare is the classic example of, of, of kid modded games. There's an amazing article that Katie Salen and I wrote about called Rui Rules. It's all about someone studied in the 1970s, just the, a, a, a huge universe of ways that, that kids are modifying Foursquare. But, but I believe that I'm less an advocate for educational games. I think they can work yeah. in schools, but I'm more an advocate for all of the learning that games give us. James G., who wrote a book called What Games Have to Teach Us About Learning right. and Literacy. It's writes, informal, yes, informal education. Right. Yeah, Games teach us so much. I mean, more than the stuff like systems thinking we've been talking about, online video games teach us about uh, how to research in communities. Games teach us about imagining ourselves as alternate identities, what it means to be an archaeologist or, or, or a scientist right. or even a soldier, and what, what that means for, for, for me personally. So I feel like there's a lot that we can learn from game thinking yeah and play right and if you don't do it then people do it without knowing they're playing so you look at say the whole QAnon, do the research movement if that were a, a game that would be the that's the best internet game i've ever seen mm. do the research do the thing you go on you go on social media you try your piece of story see if it catches on right i mean do you get do you get a hit count now do you have more followers because your story was good if people didn't, be it's sort of like what I used to say about religion. It's like religion would be so great as long as people didn't believe in it. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's right. like it's perfect. I, I, by the way, uh, Douglas, I know that we, I mentioned this before, but just about everything that that you've said about some of the the sort of critical qualities of the way you think about Judaism, mm. I think are so much the way I think about play as well. This idea uh. of like a critical the a, a critical mindset. That's kind of like ever curious, ever investigating, interrogating, but also have, for me, design has that also potential for a kind of spiritual practice as well. In designing, you are intrinsically having to think about other people. I'm designing just an interface for another person. I have to think about another human being who's not myself. I have to put myself in the place of the other and think about what's going to happen when somebody else doesn't have me to explain this interface for them. Even the most straightforward design to me is a humanizing process. And, you know, this is why I'm, I'm such an advocate for thinking about right. how design thinking can be integrated into lots of other ways of, of thinking. Here's my thing now in, in my career. I've, I've made a lot of games. I still love making and designing and playing games. I want to share all of my game design stuff, everything I've learned from teaching game design for decades with everybody else outside of games. So I'm now mm. teaching classes that are in game design, but for the people who don't want to be professional game designers. And my, my most recent book is exactly that also, trying to share what I feel is useful and interesting about all the exercises and ways I teach and think about games with people who aren't game people. Right. But the, the beauty of this, of this book, and I don't want it to over share it in the show because okay. what I've just learned is, is I go on so many podcasts and talk about my book and what I've done is made it totally unnecessary for people to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> got 30 hours, right. but what the, but I'd rather talk about what the book does, Let's which do is it, important to me at team human, which is, it seems to me what the book is about is understanding the, the human soul. So it's funny. Like you do, 
when you talk about Judaism, yes, the whole game of whatever of Judaism is about chai, you know, what we call life. How mm. do you hold life central? You know, and because mm. it's, it's about life. Mm-hmm. And how do you keep that ball? Like you, if you're doing Tai Chi, and when I went to China, mm. they always called it playing Tai Chi. What do you mm. mean I'm playing Tai Chi? I'm doing an exercise. No, you're playing Tai Chi. Mm, There's a I ball love that. Of, a ball of energy that you're trying to keep going. You can do push hands mm. and you you share the ball, but you're you're playing with a ball mm-hmm. of 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 chi of of life force. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about in the rules we break is how do we optimize not for for what the market wants or the work wants, you know, which is the the abusive gaming. And is the digital landscape that we're living in, which is mm-hmm. optimizing for utility value. And you're saying, no, 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 no. How do we optimize for the soul? How do we optimize right. for, for human soul? Right. And that's what what you're doing in a game is moving soul around between people. And there's all right. these ways it could get grounded or landed or go off course. But boy, you know, once you're circulating soul, now you're play. That's well, play. I love it that you took us to martial arts. I I have studied uh, uh, martial arts for a long time, and I completely agree with you that one of the things that I think is so interesting about martial arts is that on the one hand, they are these holistic disciplines that are about sometimes about soul and spirituality, meditation, what it means to be human. They are also at the same time incredibly often structured. When you study Tai Chi, you, you learn the form. And you mm-hmm. do or a, a form or forms and you you do those techniques over and over again. And it's kind of like, you know, a, a, tai, a tai Chi practice is mostly like yoga doing a, a set of movements, you know, over and over again every day or, or every time you go to class. And in a game, every time that, you know, that that we play, uh, I don't know that we play Settlers of Catan, we're playing the same rules, right? It's the same rules again. But every time we inhabit them. It's different. So that's one of the interesting paradoxes, I think, of, of games and play or the relationship between rules and play, that rules are these structures that we inhabit, but because we're playing with them, we're doing things with them that are different every time. We're exploring their permutations, and it just gets into all of the stuff about play that we've talked about. But I, I, I think the way that those spiritual practices or meditative practices like martial arts combine incredible rigor, physical you know, I don't want to say hardship, but sometimes it's hardship in a martial arts class, but physical rigor with this kind of deeper, more soulful engagement. I think that there's a lot that we can learn as people and as designers uh, trying to make the world a better place. Well, you get to higher levels of play. So like a kid with no skill at four can say, I'm not going to step on the crack, right? Right. <laughs> on the sidewalk. And they could go through that experience and sometimes step, sometimes not, whatever. There's a difference I'm not saying one better or one's worse, but there's a difference between that and the level of play of uh, you know an expert mm-hmm. ar- archer it right or somebody right. So they've been doing it for you know 50 years and breathing and right. meditation right. and all that. You know what is that better thing that the person who's worked at it gets? Well. I think that was it Lao Tzu who said that the the Tao can come from anything, right? That like there's this the, mm. or the story of the butcher. The butcher can can reach enlightenment just by becoming an expert butcher. I think anything that we play with, we can get deeper and deeper in. 
And I guess the hope is that, you know, that you, as you engage with the discipline, it doesn't become rote, but it becomes a kind of an investigation that, that kind of reveals itself uh, and it's, and it's hidden depths. At the same time, I also feel that that kid who's not trying to step on the cracks, I also feel that there is something there that is also quite advanced. So I wouldn't necessarily right. want to say that that is, that it's Lower. sort of a, yeah. 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 I, I find that a lot of times, a lot of my workshops now, I am, for example, at a giant game company, maybe giving a game design workshop with some of their creative leads or heads of studios. And, you know, I find that that those people, because they're so in the machine, that they are just stuck often creatively, right? So this is true of my when I'm, you know, working with students at a university or or younger or younger kids, or when I'm working with working professionals and executives. Sometimes if I'm like, okay, now we're gonna do this exercise, everyone sit down right. and you can read the room and people inhabit their bodies and you can see that they're they're like they're closed off, mm. they're stuck, they're and so then I do things like, okay, everyone stop. We're getting up. We're going outside. We're going to do some some playground games. I'm going to loosen you up. I'm going right. to make you be goofy. Or if we don't have time, I'll say, okay, everybody stand up and find a new chair. Or at the top of your lungs, shout three things, three types of food that you like to eat. Something yeah. to get people doing something, being goofy. I find that creativity. And now I'm, I'm kind of shifting, Doug, because Douglas, because archery <laughs> is about archery is about mastery. But a lot of right. a lot of my thinking about design is also about problem solving. And so I think that creative problem solving, there's two components. One is literacy, understanding what came before and educating yourself. But the other part is freedom, a feeling of freedom. So to be creative, to solve problems. And I think to to be free, you need to feel free in your body. So I think that kid who's not stepping on cracks there's they're giving themselves permission or maybe they're not yet feeling the oppressive society's constraints and they're somehow free and easy in their physical movements and i'm not i'm not romanticizing childhood but i do think that there's something to be gained there that i think there's it's wonderful now that there's a lot of attention to work life balance to self care but to me it's actually to actually solve creative problems, it is about the physical environments that we're in, that it is about the company policies that are designed or not designed to be humane, and specifically yeah. playing, getting up, playing, breaking rules, being playful with each other, engaging with other people playfully, engaging with my body playfully. And there are a lot of those exercises in 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 this book, my new book. Yeah. Those are incredibly useful in any context. Yeah, and they're useful in a in a I hate to use the meta word, but they're useful in a meta context as well because sometimes an entire discipline can become rote. So for me, for example, theater. You know, mm. the theater in the 1980s, except for you know Angels in America, theater had become <laughs> one thing. Mm. You know, it it was influenced by film and Sid Feld act structure. You could go in, you see, oh my gosh, I know exactly how this is going to unfold. I know I'm at the end of Act Two, and then there's going to be this and Crisis mm -hmm. Climax Relief, the characters, and it's like because you get so good in a way, we got so good at the form that you end up stuck in a rut. And then the only way to undo that is to become, in some sense, less sophisticated. You've got to go back to mm. earlier levels of play and say, mm -hmm. how do we, how do I, and I don't mean this in an angry way, but how do I 
what's from your title? How do I break this? Right. You know, the rules right. we break, it's not just the rules we break. What you're also talking about is how do we use play to break systems, systems of oppression. Right. And just and not even if they're intentional, just systems of, of that 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 no longer engender life force. Right. Right. So how do we go back? So for me, it was going back to the open theater and the living theater of the 60s and seeing how did they experiment, what were happenings, mm -hmm. and doing stuff that to my professors looked, oh, wait a minute, he's getting really childlike or basic. And it's like, oh, no, 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 I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to break this thing to right. find, find its life again. I think that that's, that kind of thinking can and should happen on two levels. I think it has to happen on an individual level. Like we're talking about how do we become more playful, loose, creative, critical thinkers. And I also think it has to happen on a systems thinking level. And I love this example of, you know, many people talk about reducing waste and getting people to recycle and as a sort of problem. But what I've seen the most effective solutions are, uh, creative thinking about incentives. For example, in Zurich, in Switzerland, to get your trash taken, you have to actually purchase a special trash bag from the city. So you can't just use any bag. To put it out on the street, these expensive bags, the city's making money from this. So the bags fill up, and basically everyone is incentivized to make as little trash as possible. So what's happened in Zurich? If you go into a grocery store, you will find that all the Swiss brands don't have packaging or much, much less packaging than in the United States because people suddenly realized all this unnecessary packaging, which is trying to catch my eye on the shelf, actually is producing waste that I'm actually gonna have to pay for. So to me, that's also a, a kind of creative play in the sense right. that it is looking at the sort of systems thinking, how all of the parts interrelate to form a whole, how all of the pieces on the chessboard relate to each other, the sort of one one move ahead, two moves ahead, three moves ahead that you were talking about earlier, that it's all part of the same thing. So I, I think what's interesting is that this kind of creative critical thinking can help enlighten us as individuals, but it also can be a way of trying to redesign these systems for the better. But you don't think that charging like it was probably Migros or someone who came up with this, one of those great, you know, the, the Swiss companies this are also nonprofits, you know, they, they, they have both <laughs> and they're doing all this research. It's just a whole different model of, 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 of it civilization over and there. There's also <laughs> problems, why reasons why I think that wouldn't work here. You know, we can't put people at hardship for a basic service like trash collection. Right. Isn't it a form of benevolent gamification, though? It is. I guess I would say. What are what are the underlying values and what is the model for what it means to be human there? So I think that it is not deceptive. But for example, here's here's what deceptive deception is. When you go into a casino in Las Vegas, I exchange my money for tokens because tokens are one step removed from money. So I'm thinking less about how much things cost. When I go into a digital service, I'm often converting dollars into gems or other thing at some weird exchange rate. So I'm no longer thinking about it as money. That's, right. that's deceptive. It's trying to get me to not think about the fact that I'm spending money in a way or that I'm spending it on things that I don't really need. That That's, that's different than a system which is trying to align incentives and i agree it's not maybe a clear distinction but to me it's sort of it's 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 more on the side of 
still letting people make informed choices, but trying to gear the system towards systemic change. Because the thing about recycling is a perfect example where, you know, any, any, uh, any climate activist or environmental activist that you talk to will say all the rhetoric about individual choice, it's actually invented by corporations, right? Like, like this idea that we have to change as individuals. Yes, I personally myself do everything I can to reduce my footprint and, and reduce my waste, reduce my travel as much as possible. But really, the impact has to happen at the corporate and government level. So, right. So it is this kind of global thinking that has to happen. And I think that, that if it feels like gamification, it's really about policies, it's policy and law. And I think that we do want to make a distinction there. And it's about underlying values and respecting the participants. I, I guess there's a difference between enabling voting in the United States and deceptively enacting laws which discourage voting. That's not being honest about the underlying values. Right. I mean, and in some ways, what you're talking about is changing jurisdictions or not respecting the underlying values of the game isn't even cheating at that point. It's a version of spoil sport. (laughs) I mean, mean? yeah, I mean, uh, you're kind of yeah. You're you're going through. Uh, I think Kaiwa's hierarchy of uh, yeah, yeah. Of, of cheats and spoil sports, which is uh, super interesting. But yeah, that that the cheat still wants to win the game, but the spoil sport wants to bring the game down. I guess yeah, that's like you know the January sixth insurrection or right. or events. That was definitely spoil sport. That is like we are no longer going to try and win at this democratic competition. We are going to basically flip the table over. And to get what we right. want. Right. Right. Which isn't play either. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so what are you doing now? Are you going to like go, you're going to go into companies and, and help them become, uh, help them use play or government? Can you, can you, can you fix climate or something for us? No, I can't. I, I, <laughs> I can't fix climate, but I, you know, I, I did. I do have a fantasy of pairing game designers with policy people to think about how to how to fix things like aspects of government or voting systems. Like, for example, the uh, the primary system and the the order in which states uh, hold their primaries. There, there's so much kind of knowledge inside games about tournament structures and how you would structure a kind of rotational tournament in order to make things fair multiple times around for different states. How you would bounce that out. There's so I do have this fantasy about uh, kind of gaming, figuring out how to game the system for the better. Uh, that you would, would bring, think, yeah. right? Get the get the people who do the March Madness NCAA tournament, right? Get some people from Milton Bradley <laughs> right, right. and some other folks from right. Avalon Hill, right. In to say, here's how ranked voting could work, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. So, but I also think that in some ways, the rules we break, the book itself, is an attempt to share this knowledge, and I'm hoping right. that people you know, for kids in after school programs or for people that are kind of running creative retreats at organizations. I think there's a lot of potential uses for, for all of the exercises and activities in that book. Yeah. And I think there's also, oddly enough, I think there's a market for people to just buy the book and then use it and become trainers. You know, there's, Mm. it's a good, I, I think there's a career 
in that if someone reads and, and internalizes that book, they they could become a different kind of consultant mm. to organizations, mm. you know, with that alone, which would be right. kind of fun. You could license them or not. You know what I mean? Right. But to 20 bucks or whatever for the book is the price of admission. Right. And then you're just you're you're <laughs> one of <laughs> you're you're one of the rules we break uh, official trainers. Nice. Uh, so I encourage people to, to look at it that way. Everyone's always asking me for, you know, good jobs that they could that they could do to actually make a difference. Mm. I think that's one of them. Mm. Um, it'd be a fun one. I anyway. love that idea. I really <laughs> love that idea. If you do that, yeah, feel free to reach out to me and uh, let me know how it goes. All right. Well, Eric, thanks so much for everything, for, for the, the opportunities you've created for us to play, as well as to, to understand the uh, centrality of play to the human experience. And I, I think play may be our, our last best hope for peace. <laughs> Douglas, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you for all the work that you continue to do. And, uh, you know, you've, you've definitely influenced me so much over the years with all of your writings oh. and, and projects and, uh, you know, your, your willingness to kind of dip into different sorts of media, comic books and, 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 and podcasting, uh, speaking and writing. So keep up the good work. Oh, you too. And thank you for being on team human. Our guest today was Eric Zimmerman author of The Rules We Break. You can find out more about Eric at ericzimmerman.com or come to teamhuman.fm where you can find out more about all of our guests and become a supporter of the show. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 